if you have your Bible, open and find John chapter 18. If you've been here each week, you know we've been studying through the Gospel of John. This year we started back in August last year, steadily making our way through it each week right up to today. And unfortunately, I didn't have the foresight last summer uh, to look ahead and see that today would be Easter Sunday and land on John 20 today. Uh, that would have been nice. And the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that would have been great. But alas, we're still in John 18. And uh, I, I wrestled with that. I thought, well, if we take a break from the straight through and we just skip to John's resurrection passage, well, that would just get our, our journey through John all turned upside down. Well, then if, I, if, I, if we went away from John and went to another gospel's resurrection passage today, well, then, then we wouldn't be able to finish John on time before the semester was over. So I had to make the call. Here we are. Today is Easter Sunday. We're still thinking about the events of Thursday night and early Good Friday morning of Holy Week. But it's still good that we carefully think through them. But I do aim to think about these in a particular way, keeping in mind that it is Easter Sunday. At times, as we make our way through this passage in John 18, I want us to also keep our eyes on the, on the resurrection. Uh, I want us to see how it, it points, the pa this passage itself points us to the resurrection. And uh, so in, in some ways, we're going to think through this passage not just to see it in itself, but almost from the vantage point of how the disciples may have reflected back on this passage on Monday after Resurrection Day um, on these events. So that said, John 18, if you found that, let's read our passage together. John 18, and I invite you to follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 32, so not quite the entire chapter. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. That was from his prayer in the last chapter. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. 
Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the disciple, the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. This would be Friday morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray that, that as we gather around it for the next few minutes that you would give us eyes to see the truth in these words, to see Jesus clearly in these words. Have... Please give us minds to understand the truth that, that's given to us here and hearts to embrace and love and care about, see as important the truth that we find here and give us wills to obey what it is you would have us to obey here. Give us all ears to hear, I pray. Give me the help that I need to teach, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has just prayed for his disciples in John 17, commonly referred to as his high priestly prayer. And afterward, entered into this, this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, with his disciples, minus Judas, at least momentarily. John, in this episode in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, John's account of this focuses mainly on the betrayal that takes place there. You read the other Gospels, and you have uh, a more elaborate account of what takes place. You have Jesus' anguished prayers uh, that we'll, we'll get to a little later on. Uh, but here, John makes this, focuses mainly on Judas's betrayal of Jesus. But, but having said that, uh, we, we do have 
Judas's betrayal coming to full fruition here with the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders coming to arrest Jesus. Judas is just standing there. And then we have, as we just read, not only the early stages of the, the unjust trial of Jesus, uh, but the foretold denials of Peter of even knowing Jesus, let alone being one of his followers. There's a, there's a lot going on here, and at first glance, it seems to be a rather depressing passage. There's not a whole lot of encouraging things taking place here. But, I'll say this. Recall, we've said this from the beginning, recall what John's stated purpose is for his gospel. What his stated purpose is, not just for his gospel as a whole, but which would therefore apply to every passage within that gospel. His stated purpose, which comes at the end of the gospel, is that uh, in this passage, as in every other passage, uh, that the reader might see Jesus for who he is and see the joy and the forgiveness to be found in him, believe on him, and by believing have life in his name. That's, that's the whole purpose of this and every other passage in the gospel, the gospel as a whole. That's what John intends to happen with the reader in this seemingly sad passage. And so while on first glance there, there, there isn't a whole lot of good going on here, it's nevertheless intended to make us see the glory of Jesus and, and, and the good news of the gospel. And I believe we find it here. So if you're taking notes... Um, Here's what I want us to see. I'll go ahead and lay out the road map, and then we'll dive into it. I think John, in this passage, shows us three things about Jesus' upcoming death and sacrifice, and his resurrection even. Three things. Even here in Gethsemane, in the subsequent trial and in Peter's failures, we see three things about Jesus and his forthcoming uh, death and resurrection. First, we see, and this is going to be a mouthful, so we see the divine condescension of Jesus coming sacrifice the divine condescension of Jesus coming sacrifice we see that in verses 1 through 9 particularly and here when I say condescension I don't mean it in the way we normally say it in a negative overtone like that was really condescending I mean it in the very literal sense of coming down to our level to be with us he condescended right and so I think we see this very clearly early on, the divine condescension of Jesus' coming sacrifice. Secondly, we're going to see the sinless substitution of Jesus' coming sacrifice. The sinless substitution. Where do we see that? In several places. In verses 10 to 14, in verses 19 to 24, verses 28 to 32. This is all throughout the passage, the sinless substitution of Jesus' coming sacrifice. And then finally, through the account of Peter's threefold denial, we're going to see that clearly that Jesus would be slain for sinners. Jesus would be slain for sinners, which may be, no doubt, implied in the earlier passages or the early po earlier points, but we sure see it in a very deliberate and poignant way in the threefold denials of Peter. Um, so that being said, let's dive in and take a closer look at the text. We'll start at the beginning looking at these early verses, focusing on how we see the divine condescension of Jesus' coming sacrifice. So verse 1 begins saying, when Jesus had spoken these words, obviously referring to his high priestly prayer in the, in the verses right preceding, um, there would be, John didn't include these chapter divisions, so it would have been a seamless transition between 17 and 18. 
But in that prayer, Jesus prayed about his upcoming sacrifice, prayed for his disciples, prayed for his disciples after he was gone. And verse 1 in chapter 18 says, Having done this, he went out with his disciples to a garden, a garden which we know from the other Gospels was the Garden of Gethsemane. And we learned in those Gospels that Jesus prayed again in that garden, prayed with his disciples, or wanted to pray with his disciples, asked them to stay awake and pray with him, and, and they didn't stay awake. Jesus prayed, but also he was betrayed in that garden, and that's where John's main focus is here. I've said, though, that the main thing we see highlighted in these early verses about Jesus is the divine condescension of his coming sacrifice. Both of those words are important. Um, divine condescension. Divine in that, in these early verses, John demonstrates unmistakably yet again that Jesus was God himself in human flesh coming to do this work. That is something that John has gone to painstaking detail since the first opening words of this gospel to make clear. Divine condescension. But condescension, in that in these early verses we see also clearly how in Jesus Christ God infinitely stooped to our level voluntarily for our salvation. Where do we see that here? All through it, all through these early verses. But first, let's look at how John weaves verses 3 through 6. Let's, let's zoom in there, verses 3 through 6. So verse 3 tells us that, that Judas, quote, procured a band of soldiers and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Let's get our minds around what this might have looked like. Uh, for one thing, a band of soldiers, as it's said here, we know from based on historical records and other places in Scripture, a band of soldiers could have been as many as three to six hundred soldiers. Three to six hundred. I mean, you might think, I've never pictured it being that many people coming to this garden to arrest Jesus. That almost sounds unbelievable that three hundred soldiers would have come. Well, and, and as it maybe sounds like it's too, too many to be believable. Well, I, historical records indicate that it could have been that many, but also we don't have time to turn there, but if you looked at Acts 23, 23, this is a passage in which Paul the apostle was a prisoner, and they were transporting Paul the prisoner from one place to another to stand trial. And to protect him on that transferal, they incorporated 427 soldiers to do that, to accomplish that. And so, uh, for, I mean, excuse me, 470. I don't know what I said. 470. And so it's entirely likely that there was that many, up to 300 or more soldiers, coming to arrest Jesus on that day. And verse 3 tells us that that huge company of, of, of soldiers and officials came, quote, with lanterns and torches and weapons seeking one man. Over 300 professional soldiers weaponized. Before we move on to the next verses and see how John weaves this divine condescension in there, I've told you so many times, I, I like to read the Scriptures autobiographically. And what I mean by that is I, 
insert myself somewhere in the story and, and try, to, uh, try to imagine vividly in my imagination what it would have been like from that perspective in this story. And, and I did that here, and, and I think that if you, uh, we, can, we can learn something just from this mob that came out to arrest Jesus. You have Judas, you have the Jewish rulers, and you have the Gentile, enormous cohort of Gentile Roman soldiers. You have Jews and Gentiles seemingly telling us that all are implicated in the death of Jesus. Jew and Gentile alike implicated in the, in the coming death of Jesus. But then, not only that, the more you meditate on this simple reality of those coming to arrest Jesus to try him unjustly, eventually crucify him, the more you put yourself in this situation, it reveals also more about the weight that Jesus would bear on the cross. It tells you more about the weight that he would bear. How so? Because very often we think, when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, we think simply in terms of Jesus bearing the sin of individuals on the cross. And that's not wrong, but Scripture doesn't bear out that that's all that that was, right? It was more than that. Sure, Jesus died for the sins of his individual people. My sins, your sins. And we'll say more about that in a minute. But when you think about what was actually happening here, it was more than that. What got me thinking about that here was this idea that it could have been 300 soldiers coming to arrest him. And I got to thinking, putting myself in that story and thinking about it from that perspective, think about soldier 259, okay? You're soldier 259 of 300. We have no idea who that was. But there's a good chance that soldier 259 might not have fully understood all that he was doing in that moment. Does that make sense? I mean, you think about that. Um, for all we know, this was just his night to be on duty, right? And maybe uh, he and his wife were having a fight at home, right? And they couldn't resolve it because it's my night to be on duty. And so he's on duty, but he's thinking about fussing and fighting with his wife, or he's thinking about his wayward child, or he's thinking about how is he going to, we're, we're out of food at home. I mean, he could be thinking about any number of things, but this is his night to be on duty. And here he is, Soldier 259, and he goes just because he was ordered to go. Right? Why is he in Garden of Gethsemane? Not because he necessarily has any particular animus against Jesus, but because He's a man under authority, and his authority said, you go, arrest this man. Now, and maybe from where he was standing, it wasn't a, that's a big garden. From where he, he may not have even been able to see Jesus if he was standing in the back to arrest him. Soldier 259 certainly had his own sins for which he needed forgiveness. But his presence there was indicative of something bigger than that. Like, what? His presence there was indicative of, of just a whole wicked and corrupt governmental system, right? There was, there was a, a, a fantastic article 
in the Wall Street Journal of all places this weekend about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's not, not, the, it's not the first place I go to look for, for articles about the resurrection. But in it, the author, whom I don't necessarily agree with everything he writes, but I agree with what he wrote here, he wrote this. On the cross, Jesus took on, as it were, violence, hatred, cruelty, institutional injustice, stupidity, scapegoating, and resentment. He confronted all those forces that stand athwart God's purposes. So Jesus didn't just die to redeem his individual people, but also to bear the wicked weight of a whole creation and a whole world system opposed to God. To, to succumb to it, die according to it, rise from it, and thereby judge it and overcome it. And the fact that all of this, mind you, was happening in a garden. Right? Jesus could have gone anywhere else with his disciples after that prayer, but he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He went to a garden. The fact that this was a garden, it kind of calls your biblical imagination and memory to another garden, maybe to the Garden of Eden in the beginning, right? When the first Adam in that garden fell and plunged the whole creation uh, and every generation to follow him into the curse of sin. And so you almost have here in another garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find the last Adam, Jesus, bearing the weight of the curse of the first Adam. And that's more than just my sin or your sin. That's also the whole wicked and rebellious system of this cursed world, as well as the rulers, it's in Paul's language, the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what Jesus was bearing as well. You say, well, are you sure about that? Is that a biblical idea? Absolutely it is. Think about what Paul says about the cross, about the cross in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself what? All things, whether in heaven or on earth, how? Making peace by the blood of the cross. So Jesus would deal with the personal sins against God of his individual people, but on the way to that cross in which he would do that, he was also bearing the brunt of the institutional injustice, a crooked trial being done to him, the violence and the hatred and the cruelty of a wicked system. But here were hundreds of soldiers with weapons and torches to find Jesus. That's on one side. Here we can move on to John's weaving of the story. On one side, you have hundreds of soldiers with weapons and torches looking for Jesus. And on the other side, there's Jesus. And note what John wants us to see about Jesus. First, his deity. Look at verse 4. Jesus, comma, knowing all that would happen to him. That's omniscience, which only God possesses. But second, he wants us to see Jesus, not just his divinity, but his divine condescension. Continue in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. 
He came forward. Jesus did not wait to be found. He humbly came forward. And Jesus asked them, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth at the beginning of verse 5. Not Jesus Christ, Jesus called the Christ, Jesus supposedly the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, condescension. A reminder that Jesus came to us as us in every way. Remember Nathaniel in chapter 1. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Condescension. But then Jesus answered the question in verse 5. In our English version, he answers, I am he. You know the drill by now. That's not precisely what he said. It's, it's smoothed out in English, but it's not what he said. He said, literally, I am. I am taking the, the covenant name of God on himself again. And, 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 it, and it explains why in verse 6 we're told what happened. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Imagine that scene. Deity. Hundreds, hundreds of armed, professional weaponized soldiers on the ground involuntarily. That also impresses on you the humble condescension of the Lord Jesus. He let them arrest him. He could have kept them on the ground. But he asked them to let his disciples go and he would go with them. Jesus going instead of them. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, condescended to subject himself to the wicked rulers of this world, beginning here in a garden. And little did anyone else know besides Jesus himself at this point that a few days later on Sunday he would rise again in yet another garden to vindicate his great name and righteousness over all his enemies. And not just that, but to win the victory for, of salvation for all who believe. Which is why at several points in this passage, we don't just see the divine condescension of the Lord Jesus. Uh, but we also see his sinless substitution to win the salvation of all his people. So let's think about that for just a second. The sinless substitution of Jesus' coming sacrifice. Like I said earlier, we see this in several places in this passage. Two aspects, just like divine and condescension, both important. Sinless substitution, also both important. Two aspects repeatedly emphasized. The sinlessness of it and the substitutionary nature of it. For example, look at verses 10 to 14. In verses 10 and 11, we see the, the substitutionary nature of Jesus' sacrifice somewhat portrayed. Peter, in an effort to defend Jesus, takes his sword. I'm like, Peter didn't know he had a sword, but he had a sword, and he cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. By the way, little historical details like that just add to the credibility and reliability of the Gospels. That they even tell you what the guy's name was, whose ear got cut off, Right? But Jesus healed the man's ear immediately and rebukes Peter in verse 11. Look there. He says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
what is that? What is this cup that was given to him? John doesn't provide a whole lot of explicit explanation, but Matthew does in his gospel. So if you don't mind, hold your place here in John and flip back for just a second to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and there you'll find Matthew's account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when you're in Matthew 26, you have, beginning in verse 36, you have Jesus in Gethsemane, which is what we're talking about today. And notice that in verse 39, Jesus prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He mentions the cup. Then in verse 42, again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. So he's talking about this cup. Your will be done. And a third time in verse 44, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. But how in Matthew 26 are we, are we, um, are we given any indication as to what this cup he's asking to be spared from but nevertheless, not my will, but yours. What is this cup even in Matthew 26? Well, in this same chapter, Matthew 26, we've already been given a vivid illustration of it. Earlier in the chapter, you have also Jesus' last final Passover meal with his disciples, what we now know as the Lord's Supper. And in verses 27 and 28, Jesus says he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In that meal, Jesus made clear, the cup of wine vividly represented the blood that Jesus would, would shed on the cross. For what? For, the forgive, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness from what? From the wrath of God. So the cup that Jesus was going to drink is the cup of the wrath of God against sin. And as, a, as an aside, I love how in Matthew 26 you have these two things side by side. And so you, it's like you can see how Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath against our sin so that for us in the Lord's Supper, the cup for us is a cup of blessing. Maybe leave a marker here in Matthew 26. We'll come back to it one more time, but go back to John 18 again. And with that background now, knowing that the cup is the cup of God's wrath, we can see how now in John 18, verse 11, Jesus tells Peter in verse 11, Shall I not drink the cup? Shall I not drink this cup of, uh, that the Father has given me? He's emphasizing the substitutionary nature of his coming death on the cross. I take his wrath so you don't. He's taking the wrath of God on himself instead of his people. We also see substitution emphasized in verses 12 to 14, where Jesus is standing trial before Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. And John takes the opportunity in verse 14 to remind us that back in chapter 11, it was Caiaphas who inadvertently prophesied about Jesus that it would be better if one man should die for the people instead of all the people. Again, Jesus' death would be substitutionary. 
him in the place of his people. Substitution. But we also see the sinlessness of his coming sacrifice. Like down in verses 19 to 24. For example, in verses 19 and 20, he's still standing trial before Annas. And Jesus is asked about his teaching. And Jesus replies that he has always spoken openly. He's always uh, acted openly in front of everyone in the synagogues, in the temple, where all could see and all could hear, insinuating that there was no wrongdoing at any point, no wrong words spoken. There was nothing for him to hide from or for which to be ashamed. And when, in verses 21 and 22, the officers struck Jesus on the face for saying this to Annas, Jesus replies in verse 23, asserting again his sinlessness, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? All of this is to emphasize not just the, the substitutionary nature of Jesus' coming death, but the sinlessness of it, the purity of it. The, the, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus suffering for no wrong done whatsoever. But then you go to the end of our passage in verses 28 to 32, and you see both sinlessness and substitution emphasized. In verses 28 to 30, Jesus is now before Pilate, and Pilate asks the Jewish rulers why they've brought him to him. And their only answer in verse 30 is, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. What a non-answer. They have no credible accusation to, 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 to uh, bring against him. Why? Because he was sinless. Other Gospels tell us they had many false witnesses coming forward and they couldn't even bear false witness believably against Jesus. Sinlessness. Then in verses 31 and 32, the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he would die. Which raises the question, what, what had Jesus spoken to indicate what kind of death he would die? Well, two places in John come to mind. Maybe turn back to John 12. And look at verses 31 and 32. And 33. Verse 31, John 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And in this passage, the, Jesus said the kind of death he would die would deal with the ruler of this world. Cast him out. As we said earlier, Jesus was bearing more than just our individual sins. He was bearing the whole weight of a wicked world on him, casting out the ruler of this world. But turn back just a couple more chapters to John 10. And remember how Jesus described his own death, his coming death here in John 10. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd instead of the sheep. Substitution. Appropriate for this day, I think. Look what else Jesus says in John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life 
that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus went to the cross with his eye on the resurrection, as Hebrews would say, for the joy set before him. He would endure the cross. So we've seen divine condescension in Jesus' coming sacrifice. We've seen the sinless substitutionary nature of his coming sacrifice. But as we come to a close, we also need to see clearly that Jesus would be slain for sinners. We would be egregiously amiss if we didn't mention the threefold denials back in John 18 by Peter described here. In verse 17 in John 18, in verse 17, Peter denies Jesus to a servant girl outside the temple court. In verse 25, Peter was now inside the temple court with a crowd warming themselves by a fire. And a second time, he denies being a follower of Christ. Matthew's gospel includes this fact that when he denied it this time, he did it with an oath. He swore an oath, I promise. Then in verse 27, a relative of Malchus, whose ear Peter had cut off, pressed him further, and he denies Jesus a third time. And Matthew's gospel includes this fact. He says, he, at this point, Peter, quote, began to invoke a curse and to swear, I do not know the man. And on this one, Matthew includes the fact that after hearing the rooster crow, Peter went out and wept bitterly. It's easy to come down on Peter here. It is easy to come down on Peter. But if you still have a marker in Matthew 26, turn back there one more time. I want us to see something that Jesus said about all of his disciples, not just Peter. Matthew 26 and verse 31, Jesus says, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. All would fall away, flee for a time, not just Peter, all of them, all of us. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. While you're there in Matthew 26, go ahead and look at what he says in the very next verse, verse 32. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Jesus looks forward to the resurrection. But what is this bit about Galilee? Well, flip over to chapter 28, Matthew 28. We're flipping this morning. We've got to end on the resurrection, guys. And on that resurrection morning on Sunday, the women came to the tomb and found the stone rolled away. And in verse, verses 6 and 7, they hear from an angel. And the angel says, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. There it is again. The resurrected Jesus would go before them to Galilee. What's that all about? When the women went and told the disciples what they had seen, Jesus appeared to the women. Jesus himself appeared to the women, and he says, verse 9 and 10, Greetings, and they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, and go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. There it is again. Go into Galilee. Tell them to meet me there. Resurrected Jesus. Well, they make it to Galilee in verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed. And it was there that they saw the risen Christ, and they worshiped him there. And there he proclaimed his authority over heaven and earth and commissioned him to go and make disciples of all nations, 
Mike, I ask you this. To whom did Jesus say these things? To those who just three days earlier scattered like sheep when the shepherd was stricken. They all fell away. Peter first among them who had proudly proclaimed he never would. But those were precisely the sins for which the Lord Jesus died. And, 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 as, and they were as... At, at, on this resurrection day in Matthew 28, those sins of Friday were as far as the east is were from the west. And when he met them on that mountain of, in Galilee, they, he met them, they were forgiven and restored and commissioned to go out in his name. The sacrifice of Jesus was God in human flesh, substituting himself, the sinless one for sinners, to redeem them from their sins and to bring them one day into, redeem, into a redeemed creation. For all eternity. The resurrected Jesus vindicated, verified all these realities, all these promises, saying to his disciples and to us, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. We're done. Lord, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for this reality that Jesus is risen from the dead. He is no longer there. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Lord, Continue to meet with us by your Spirit in the coming worship hour. May you be glorified in all that takes place. We love you, Lord. Amen.